Method and Madness is a true crime podcast and contains descriptions of violence. This episode features outdated terminology and disturbing accounts of medical procedures and abuse. Listener discretion is advised. What's more terrifying? The idea that an abandoned hospital is haunted or the truth about what went on when it was open. This is Method and Madness, Episode 49, Asylums. I'm your host, Dawn Gandhi. Summer is over. We're entering that time of the year, spooky season. And in that spirit, we're going to dive into a topic often represented in pop culture as chilling, ominous, mysterious, and downright frightening. In pop culture, the word asylum conjures up images of straitjackets and patients shuffling down a brightly lit hallway dressed in white, sadistic nurses in uniforms, white hats and white shoes, electroshock therapy, lobotomies, agonizing screams heard from somewhere not so far away, and maybe some sort of therapeutic epiphany at the climax. In the horror genre, it's often the abandoned hospital, the forgotten Decrepit building behind a barbed wire fence, overgrown weeds, hiding a broken window with bars on it. Inside, one lone metal chair stands in a hallway, and behind a creaky door lies a staircase that leads to a dank basement of dusty filing cabinets filled with secrets, patient records, audio cassettes of therapy sessions, And, of course, a group of teens that breaks in and is killed one by one. But how accurate is all of this when it comes to the asylum? Does the imagery that we think of match up with reality? Do TV shows and movies like American Horror Story, Ghost Hunters, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, Girl Interrupted, or Session 9... Do they actually provide us a glimpse inside the dusty window pane and into the world of asylums? And why are we so intrigued and terrified by the concept? On today's episode, we're going to take a look at the asylum in all of their architectural beauty, their folklore. What were they really like? Why were they built? What occurred between their walls? And whatever happened to them? Let's dive in. Nearly one in five Americans are living with mental illness today. It's pretty common to sort of 
separate ourselves from a time when inhumane treatment of various conditions was the norm. We like to tell ourselves that there's a reason things were that way and celebrate that we've come so far. It's probably a way of comforting ourselves that we are safe, that this couldn't happen to me. I was born in a better time, or my particular brand of mental health would keep me from the atrocities of the past. When I set out to cover this story, I guess I wasn't that surprised to learn that the way mental health was treated in the 18th, 19th, and even 20th centuries was abysmal. That anyone in need of mental health care was seen as undesirable, a nuisance, who was too delicate to make their own decisions, a burden to those who were trying to live a quote-unquote normal life without the embarrassment. And while we've shed a lot of the shame that comes with discussions of mental illness or disabilities, in 2022, it seems we still have a lot of work to do. The asylum, or insane asylum, or mental institution, as you probably guessed, are rather outdated terms as the concept itself doesn't really exist, not in the sense it did when these hospitals were in operation. These terms give off the vibes that anyone in need of mental health care is somehow insane. Today, there are psychiatric units within large hospitals or behavioral health facilities or psychiatric hospitals. Presently, these facilities treat people with psychiatric illnesses just like a person would be treated with a physical illness or disease such as diabetes or epilepsy. And many of these facilities still have their share of issues. But mental health was for a long time misunderstood. If you were living with a mental illness 200 years ago, it's possible you would have been committed against your will. When the term asylum was popular, it referred to a hospital that housed the mentally ill or those that were referred to as mentally incompetent or undesirable. People who were deemed by family or society as, quote, lunatics, when in actuality, anyone could be admitted to these facilities for little to no reason. It could be as simple as someone having what was thought of as strange thoughts or behaviors. Or it could be someone living with mental illness that could surely be cured if they were just sent away. Before much was known about mental illness, this was acceptable. You sent your loved one away to be cured. If doctors and scientists hadn't yet figured it out, then how was mom and pop at home going to be equipped to handle a family member that was struggling? And in the 1700s, 1800s, and much of the 1900s, there was a stigma around someone with mental health issues. It was a dark secret to be living with someone that your community referred to in derogatory terms. Idiots, lunatics, terms that were acceptable and even used in medical terminology. The goal in the development of asylums, later referred to as madhouses, was for its patients to be provided with a stable and calming environment along with fresh air, exercise, and even jobs while a cure was sought. There was a plan developed by psychiatrist 
Thomas Story Kirkbride, known as the Kirkbride Plan, a moral treatment that was used all over the United States, a system of mental asylums focused on natural light and air circulation, which were said to be important factors in treatment. The idea was that these undesirables would go, live in these facilities, be in an isolated, peaceful setting, and be cured of whatever was afflicting them. The facilities themselves were built with a positive goal in mind, but it came with a price, literally. This type of private care was only available to those that could afford it, but what about those that could not? In the mid-1800s, there was a huge effort in the U.S. to provide this care for all, and so citizens paid for dozens of institutions to be constructed. So by 1880, 139 of these asylums were built in the U.S. Toward the end of the episode, we're going to talk about some specific ones, as some of them still stand, abandoned, and are popular among those drawn to the paranormal realm. So by now it's 1880, you have 139 of these asylums, and ultimately, the goal is to provide those with mental illness with a stable, calming environment, complete with fresh air, exercise, and jobs. The facilities were often located in country settings to guide patients into a calmer existence. But the institutions were mostly funded by state tax dollars and local governments in an effort to avoid the costs of the elderly in state hospitals, redefined the term senility as psychiatric problems. Now, those men and women were sent to the state-supported asylums. With so many patients being treated under the same roof by staff that wasn't necessarily versed in their needs, issues quickly arose and overcrowding began. We'll get to all of that. In many cases, patients were admitted to these facilities against their will. Now, what exactly fell under the umbrella of what was considered mentally ill? Who was admitted and for what? Well, it was for a variety of reasons. This information comes from the archives of the West Virginia Hospital for the Insane and is just some of the conditions. Okay, so we've got chronic dementia, acute mania, melancholia, menstrual, ill health, traumatic injury, and masturbation. Floating around the internet over the past few years, you may have seen an additional list which included the reasons behind these ailments, if you will. The contributing factors. It's a long list, but here's a sample of what was in those archives from the West Virginia Division of Culture and History. So we've got asthma, bad habits, snake bites, congestion of brain, crime, death of sons in war, disappointed affection, domestic trouble, excessive sexual abuse, feebleness of intellect, desertion of husband, greediness, hereditary predisposition, indigestion, jealousy and religion, laziness, masturbation and syphilis, menstrual deranged, nymphomania, snuff eating or chewing tobacco, tobacco and masturbation, what a lethal combination that is, and my personal favorite, women. 
By the time the concept of affordability for all came about, these hospitals became overcrowded due to an increase in mental health diagnoses as well as the stigma around certain conditions. A building originally designed to house 250 patients would eventually house numbers as high as 2,600. Imagine this. Any available space in a facility that could hold a bed would. We're talking even in the attic. Patient rooms that were designed for four beds had at least double that amount, and patients would even share beds. With the increase of all these beds, there would be no room for exercise or activities and no resources for personalized care. State funding then began to decrease, and therefore so did the quality of the staff. You can see where this is headed. The ratio of patient to staff was then disproportionate. With the staff outnumbered, the result was often chaos. And who was going to get better in an environment with inadequate care and insufficient funds? And thus began the issues of the condition of the facilities. Shocking reports of poor sanitation, insufficient furniture, plumbing, lighting, and heating. This is where life in the asylum begins to take shape and become what we think of today. Dirty facilities, neglected residents, patients being used for labor, forced medication, patients walking the halls naked, sitting in a bed of their own filth. Straight up abuse. In Canada, at the London Asylum for the Insane, hydrotherapy was a popular treatment. Water at different temperatures was thought to be effective in treating mental illness. So one method was cold water sprays, where patients were hosed down. Straitjackets were used to restrain and pacify patients, and by the early 1900s, insulin shock therapy was being used to treat schizophrenia. Patients were injected with large doses of insulin and put into a coma. In the 1930s, the frontal lobotomy was developed after doctors studied frontal lobe syndrome. This is disturbing, so just a heads up. This entailed drilling holes in the patient's skull to gain access to the brain. The first lobotomy performed to treat mental illness was done in Portugal in 1935. Now, my first introduction to the surgery was watching the original Planet of the Apes on TV when I was a kid and seeing the human character of Landon suddenly appear on screen with a large horseshoe-shaped scar on his head. It's revealed that he was lobotomized, having most of his brain removed, and he's now merely a shell of what he was previously. The belief in the medical world was that by cutting the brain, you'd cut away the feelings and overactive emotions caused by mental illness. What patients ended up with in many cases was irreparable brain damage due to this drastic operation. Dr. Walter Freeman in the U.S. performed the first lobotomy on American soil in 1936. He continued to study and revamp the process, theorizing that the same result could be just as effective without the drilling. And so, again, this is disturbing as a heads up, he started performing the transorbital, or ice pick, lobotomy. The first on January 17, 1946. The surgery was always performed by Dr. Freeman himself, 
and the patient would be given electroshock or anesthesia to render them unconscious. Then, a tool resembling an ice pick was inserted into the patient's brain by hammering the ice pick through the bone above the eye. The ice pick was then wriggled back and forth to sever the connections to the prefrontal cortex in the frontal lobes of the brain. Over the next 26 years, Freeman performed lobotomies on 2,500 patients in 23 states, and lobotomies were responsible for approximately 500 deaths. The U.S. was still a few years away from being able to treat mental illness with medications, so the lobotomy became super popular, and then later, fortunately, it was deemed barbaric. According to NPR, Dr. Freeman was a bit of a showman, performing two-handed lobotomies in which he'd hammer ice picks into both eyes at once. One story indicated that a patient died when Freeman stopped to pose for a photo and inadvertently pushed the ice pick in too far. Where did he go from there? He decided to take this lobotomy on the road and started treating headaches and other ailments. In 1949, he began visiting mental institutions all over the U.S. to perform these ice pick lobotomies. What better way to deal with the overcrowding of the institutions and treatment of people with mental illness than using psychosurgery? And with the mental institutions lacking proper surgical supplies and operating rooms, the ice pick lobotomy was perfect. It was like someone was marketing diet pills. Flyers circulated that read, Are you depressed? Do you suffer from anxiety and migraines? You may need a lobotomy. I'm not even making this up. And then bullet points outlined all of the conditions that could be treated. Schizophrenia, panic disorders, OCD, chronic pain, violent outbursts, PTSD, ADD, Alzheimer's, and my personal favorite, unmanageable loved ones. And any lobotomy advertisement isn't complete without a before and after photo. The before on this particular flyer shows a black and white photo of a woman in despair without a drop of makeup on and her hair pushed back. But the after shows that same woman looking into the camera lens, smiling with her rouge and lipstick and pin curls in place. The cherry on the top is the diagram in the middle, the profile of a woman with her eye being pierced with an ice pick, and a graphic that says, only takes 10 minutes. The effects of lobotomies varied. There are testimonials of people who said, my mom never had a bad headache again, to testimonials of actual patients, even children, that said they were put to sleep and the surgery was performed without their knowledge. And afterward, they never felt normal again. There's also people who noted that their family member was never the same again, that the lobotomy robbed them of who they were. The doctors and scientists pushing these procedures assured the public that those who underwent lobotomies came out on the other side calm, calmer than before but it was more likely they were just in a vegetative state. And it was that vegetative state that made these patients easier to care for by their families. Perhaps the most infamous case of a patient receiving a lobotomy was Rosemary Kennedy, sister of John F. Kennedy. Born in 1918, early reports say she had some intellectual disabilities, 
with theories that she was deprived oxygen at birth. Still, a lot of information from her early years is unknown. But despite those difficulties, Rosemary was described as very loving and affectionate as a child and teenager. She was considered to be delayed in reaching milestones in comparison to her siblings. Around age 22, her family members described her as increasingly irritable and difficult. And after trying out private schools, her parents were at a loss without their resources to equip them. Rosemary's father was convinced that a new surgery, a lobotomy, would calm her down and therefore make her a more suitable member of the Kennedy family. It's been alleged that he was more focused on the image of his family and the accomplishments of his nine children, and he'd gone to great lengths to keep her disabilities a secret. And so without her mother's consent, Rosemary received a lobotomy at age 22 and was left with catastrophic effects, losing most of her ability to walk and talk, and she was permanently unable to care for herself. She spent the rest of her life as a resident of St. Coletta's School for Exceptional Children, where she was isolated from her family for a number of years until they were able to reconnect. Rosemary died in 2005 at age 86 from natural causes. Her sister Eunice had started the Special Olympics, which evolved from a camp she started in her backyard for children with special needs. Eventually, lobotomies were seen as a barbaric practice and were banned in many countries that stated it was inhumane, like Russia, Japan, and Germany. Today, psychosurgery is still used but is described as a more refined approach, targeting specific areas of brain tissue. The 1930s also brought us electroconvulsive therapy or electroshock therapy. Here's one patient's story. In the 1960s, people were still being admitted into mental institutions against their will, asked to remove their belts and surrender any pens or pencils to a nurse. One survivor, Dorothy Washburn Dundas, details in the documentary From Asylums to Recovery how she arrived at a Massachusetts institution in December of 1960 at age 19. Her parents drove her there after she was originally admitted to Mass General for an overdose of aspirin, a result of her depression. She recalls being so petrified that she didn't speak for the first few days, which resulted in a diagnosis of schizophrenia, followed by shock therapy. Fifty shock treatments were administered in total over her three years as a resident. She and three other teen girls that shared her room would wake up every morning at 6 a.m., to staff members standing around them. A nurse would then inject each of the teens with insulin to be put into a coma. Sometimes it would take a few days and a few injections for the patients to actually go into a coma. And then, three times a week, an electroconvulsive therapy doctor would come into the patient's room, and Dorothy and her three roommates would endure this treatment. One by one, while lying in their beds, they took turns, unwillingly, and not a single one of them received anesthesia. The doctor would hook his machine up, and it connected to the patient's forehead. The nurses on either side of the bed were there to help hold the patient down 
while the machine did its thing, running an electric current through the brain to cause convulsions. The goal being that these convulsions would be therapeutic for those with mental illnesses. At some point during each treatment, the girls would each pass out. Dorothy said she'd wake up sometime later, vomiting. This went on for six weeks, and one day, her roommate Susan didn't wake up. She died at 17 as a result of this treatment. In a testimony that Dorothy later gave before the Neurological Devices Panel of the Medical Devices Advisory Committee, she described the lasting effects that electroshock therapy had on her in the three years that she was institutionalized. She forever lost her ability to do math in her head, whereas previously, she had done very well in school. She often lost her train of thought and found it difficult to stay focused while having a conversation. But no effect had been as traumatizing for her as the memories of those violent mornings. It wasn't just treatments that were traumatizing. Reports of sexual assault and physical abuse from patient to patient, staff to patient, or patient to staff worsened as overcrowding took over. Sadly, sexual assault in psychiatric facilities is still a problem today, one that is underreported. So Dorothy eventually left the institution, but not all patients were fortunate enough, and many would spend the rest of their lives there. Abandonment was one reason. For those who watch The Crown, some of this may sound familiar. In 1941, Queen Elizabeth's cousins, Nerissa and Catherine, were moved from their home in Scotland and placed in the Royal Earlswood Asylum for Mental Defectives, information that didn't come out until April 1987 when The Sun printed a story under the sensational headline, Queen's Cousins Locked in Madhouse. The article caused so much outrage due to its derogatory terms and an invasive photo of one of the girls taken under false pretenses, and the managing editor of The Sun issued an apology. Nerissa, 22, and Catherine, 15, their ages at the time they were committed, were admitted to the facility in secret by their mother, Fenilla Trefusis. It was said that they each had a mental age of about three. In 1961, the women were documented as deceased. According to British royal genealogy, Nerissa had died in 1940, and Catherine in 1961. But it wasn't true. And for decades, the public had no idea they were alive and being kept in secret in an asylum. Family members claimed it wasn't an intentional lie, but rather a result of the women's mother filling out documentation incorrectly. Reportedly, the queen mother didn't even know her nieces had been hospitalized and only found out in 1982. Upon learning of the news, she would send the two women money, but that has been disputed by the hospital staff, who say that the women never once got visitors after the early 1960s and never received money or gifts. This all came to light when journalists found Nerissa's grave near the hospital, and it indicated she'd actually died in 1986. Catherine later died in 2014, at the age of 87. Let's take a look at some more of the treatments that were considered modern medicine at the time. 
If a patient's condition was unable to be treated by the methods and treatment provided, or if they weren't showing progress, they must have been incurable. There's that lack of understanding of mental health and what was needed to treat someone living with, say, depression, anxiety, or alcoholism. That there wasn't a one-size-fits-all treatment for treating schizophrenia and drug addiction. Or a patient with dementia wasn't responding to the Kirkbride method of sunshine and privacy. So one thing was solitary confinement. The impact of this, either sensory deprivation or sensory overload, mixed with social disconnection and isolation, ultimately led to mental health deteriorating. According to Psychiatric Times, those who experience solitary confinement are at a 26% increased risk of premature death. In Utica, at the New York State Lunatic Asylum, the Utica crib was popular in the 1840s. Think of traditional baby's cribs, but for adults, with a lid. So patients could be locked in for hours or days. When those were deemed inhumane, the padded room was used as an alternative. Ice baths were used to shock patients into sedation if they were suffering from insomnia, depression, or thoughts of suicide. But if someone wasn't responding to shock therapy or solitary confinement, for example, they were incurable and would live every day in the hospital until they died. And for many, they were buried in the hospital's cemeteries. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. I don't know about you, but I'm really thankful that mental health and self-care are taking more of a front seat these days. Therapy has helped me when I felt overwhelmed and needed to sort some things out. Maybe you're feeling more stressed lately or like you're struggling with work or personal relationships. However you're feeling, you deserve to be happy and to know that there is no shame in therapy. BetterHelp is customized online therapy. In under 48 hours, you could be communicating with a therapist by phone, live chat, or video if you're comfortable. Now is a good time to invest in yourself and see what online therapy is all about. And special offer to Method and Madness listeners. You can get 10% off your first month of professional therapy at betterhelp.com slash method and madness. That's better H-E-L-P dot com slash method and madness. Thanks again to BetterHelp for sponsoring this episode. Hey y'all, Jen and Lindsay here from Corpus Delicti Podcast, here to tell you to check out our show. If true crime is your thing, it's ours too. With a touch of lightheartedness and a dash of Southern charm, we cover compelling cases and crack them open for you. Serial killers, hitmen, historical hallmarks, we've got it all and bring you new episodes every Tuesday morning. You can find us on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and most other podcast apps. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter too. That's C-O-R-P-U-S-D-E-L-I-C-T-I. See you Tuesday. Thorazine, an antipsychotic drug, came on the scene in the 50s and was seen as an alternative to treatments that were commonly used for schizophrenia, like electroshock, insulin coma therapy, and lobotomy. 
with the popularity of pharmaceuticals being used to treat mental illness, these other disturbing treatments began to get phased out. Before we get into what became of the facilities, let's talk about some of the actual asylums in the U.S. One of the most infamous is the Athens Lunatic Asylum in Ohio, with beautiful Victorian architecture. It sits on 141 acres and operated from 1874 to 1993. The property was then purchased by Ohio State University, but while operating as an institution, it provided patients with many of the inhumane treatments we've been talking about, from ice baths to lobotomies. According to the website Legends of America, it treated Civil War veterans, children, the elderly, the homeless, rebellious teenagers being taught a lesson by their parents, and violent criminals suffering from various mental and physical disabilities. About 1,800 patients were buried in the cemetery located on the grounds, and legend has it the place is now haunted. The most famous ghost is said to be that of Margaret Schilling, who was a patient that went missing there in 1978 and was found dead 42 days later in an abandoned ward. Danvers State Hospital in Massachusetts, nicknamed Witch's Castle on the Hill, is now a residential community full of renovated apartments. It sits on Hathorne Hill, as in John Hathorne, who presided over the Salem Witch Trials. Aesthetically, it was pretty breathtaking Gothic architecture across 40 buildings. But it, too, had overcrowding and abusive conditions until it was closed down permanently in 1992, after, of course, becoming a common place for teens to trespass, especially the cemetery, which has 770 gravestones. Residents of the apartments today say they're often visited by the ghosts of the patients that once lived there. In 1879, the Dakota Hospital for the Insane was built in South Dakota. Its name was later changed to Yankton State Hospital. In 1899, a fire broke out and 17 female patients died. The hospital had all the issues as all the others with overcrowding and abusive practices until a new facility was built in the 1990s. Rockland State Hospital in New York was used as a filming location for exterior shots of the show Orange is the New Black. It was built in 1927 with large iron gates welcoming visitors to the multiple two-story buildings connected by tunnels and walkways. Soldiers returning from war were often sent here. Now it's mostly ruins of old abandoned buildings and a cemetery with several unmarked graves. The New Jersey State Lunatic Asylum, later the Trenton State Hospital in New Jersey, is still in use, but most of the buildings are abandoned. What remains houses about 400 patients. If you pull up photos online of the abandoned wards, you'll have enough nightmare fuel to last you for a few days. The Norwich State Hospital in Connecticut closed in 1996 and is a hotspot for vandals and for the curious. Like many abandoned hospitals, it's believed to be haunted. In Iowa, there's the Independence State Hospital, popular with fans of the paranormal. It still operates today, but there are abandoned wards where current employees and visitors say they've heard whispers or felt someone watching them. Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum in West Virginia 
shut down in 1994 and now offers visitors ghost tours, paranormal tours, and haunted fun during the Halloween season. But it's a designated historic landmark, and money goes toward restoration. Western State Hospital in Washington is where 1930s Hollywood actress Frances Farmer stayed off and on for a number of years in the 1940s. There, she stated she was, quote, raped by orderlies, gnawed on by rats, and poisoned by tainted food, chained in padded cells, strapped into straitjackets, and half-drowned in ice baths. Despite rumors that she was lobotomized, there's no factual evidence to back that up. So fortunately, starting in the 1970s, people were fighting and advocating for better, that is, humane, treatment among those were psychologists, psychiatrists, and survivors of these institutions. They were pushing for literature on medication, uh, an end to involuntary commitment, and forced drugging. So laws were passed to establish minimum standards of care and barring patients from working and, you know, protecting their rights. But with these laws came a cost, and the buildings and grounds began to go into disrepair. Patients that couldn't be treated against these new standards were released, often with nowhere to go. While researching this episode, I kept coming back to one question. As we look back on these so-called treatments, we're justifiably horrified by what occurred in these hospitals and how patients suffered, not to mention the stigma that surrounded people just trying to live a fruitful life with a mental illness or disability. So in a hundred years, what will be looked back on? What are we doing today that will be considered inhumane? I'd love to hear your thoughts. Thank you for listening to Method and Madness. I appreciate you. This is an independent podcast. If you'd like to show your support, you can leave a five-star rating on Spotify or a five-star review on Apple Podcast. It makes the show more visible for new listeners. I'm on Twitter at MethodPod and on Instagram at Method and Madness Pod. There's a Method and Madness page on Facebook as well. To chat or discuss the episode, reach out to me at MethodAndMadnessPod at gmail.com. Method and Madness is research written and hosted by me. Sound editing is by Mo and Spo. Method and Madness is a true crime podcast that discusses dark and disturbing subject matter. For crisis support, text hello to 741 741.